in this area in southern Ontario, it's really about the retreat of the glaciers, right? So we're going back 14,000 years here. There's been evidence of Indigenous people being here about 10,000 years ago. But there was also 4,000 years of other things going on, whether it's rivers eroding, whether it's lakes moving, whether it's shorelines changing. All these things are important to understanding where you're building, why you're building there, what impact you're having on this right now. You know, if you go back 14,000 years, it does tend to make you think 14,000 years ahead as well. Matthew Hickey is an architect and a partner at the indigenous architecture firm Turo. The firm has worked for decades on reservations and in settler communities in both Canada and the United States, giving built expression to indigenous ways of knowing and being. In recent years, Turo has partnered with an increasing number of national and international architecture firms on projects of civic, cultural, and social importance. I'll introduce myself sure. in my language. Scano, Sego, Segoli, Songwenko, Matthew Hikiyaso. Hane is Ongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongwehongw
And it's meant to symbolize two parallel paths, two ships, one ship, one canoe, traveling down the St. Lawrence River on parallel paths with each other, really indicating kind of a way of thinking of how these two groups would live together. And we see this kind of as a reflection of how we approach our work as well. We do a lot of collaborations with what we would call mainstream firms. And for us, it's really about that mutual respect. It's about bringing forward the best of both worlds, uh, which we have to do in 2023. You know, we, we should be looking to Indigenous values, but we should also be using contemporary methods and technologies that we've established and grown with uh, from a Western point of view. So that name really is a product of our history of our culture, uh, but also a reality of the way that we work and our processes. I will also add that the name was asked for. He didn't just name it. He went to an elder chief and asked if he could have permission to use that name as well. Bit of a jump here from something very specific to something quite broad, but you know, there is this conversation around inclusive design mm-hmm. these days and thinking about accommodating disability specifically. Mm-hmm. But there's another way of talking about it, which is universal inclusivity. And so can you talk a little bit about what that idea means for you? One of the things that we talk about in our office a lot is about how we approach our relationship to the world around us. And we're thinking about inclusivity, we're thinking about safety, and how do we do that in a manner that really becomes universal? You know, it's not just about disabilities, it's not just about people with challenges, it's about all the challenges that all of our relations face on this earth our relations being the wind, the rain, the sun, you know, birds, bees, insects, whatever it is that has life on this planet that we don't see as equal. This term universal inclusivity came in a response to accessibility, inclusivity, and thinking beyond that. How do we make it universal so it applies to everything? Mm-hmm. You know, in the nature of architecture, landscape design, urban planning transportation planning, whatever it is, there's always displacement. And oftentimes we're displacing all these other things that we rely on. So thinking about the importance of these pieces as important or more important than humans is a way that we like to kind of frame that idea about universal inclusivity. How do we include beyond just humans? Could you speak a little bit to why that's so important that we're not displacing other forms of life? Yeah, the be-all and end-all is that we rely on these other pieces for our survival. If you take a look at the timeline of how long we've been on the Earth compared to water, for example, <laughs> we're, we're a blip in time. You know, we're a blip in time. And if you look at trees, if you look at bees, we're still a blip in time. And we think we're so smart and so important. In reality, we could be gone in a second. You know, and and all these other things, we rely on them. So the moment we start treating these other pieces as important, it's mutually beneficial for us as well. So we're not saving something else. I always say we can't save the earth. We need to save the human species. The earth will be fine. Mother Earth will take care of herself. It's us that we need to worry about. So, you know, thinking that way for us is really about how you can start to approach work, whatever it may be from a design point of view built world point of view in a way that allows or promotes spaces for those other other things that we need to survive. Could you speak about some instances where that way of thinking takes shape in a building? Another way of thinking about it is like non-siloing. Is it just a building? 
you know, what are we doing when we're building a building? We're also dealing with landscape. We're also dealing with infrastructure. We're dealing with diverting water to some degree. How do we think about all these things in connection? One of the, one of the simplest ways, I mean, I've, I'm coming to this idea of water, but rain. You know, we constantly call it stormwater in a city. And we need rain. <laughs> is it is it stormwater? Is it something to be captured and put into a tube, into a pipe, and then shipped out to the ocean or to the lake? I would say it's not. It's something that we need. It's a gift to us. So if we can start to think about how do we capture that, how do we use that, how do we celebrate water mm-hmm. in a way that we can harvest it, use it on our site, whether it's in landscape form, whether it's for heating, cooling, whatever it is, and not think about it as, as a system that we need to deal with. The other piece is like, you know, thinking about building is not just building, but building is landscape, building as an integrated part of the world around it. And it doesn't just stop at your property line. I mean, we're trained to think this way from a colonial point of view. Even the idea of property is a colonial point of view, right? So these things are perpetual in drawings, in the site plans. But the moment we start thinking about this as a larger system, which a lot of people do, especially in landscape design, landscape architecture, where you're, you're treating a whole system as opposed to one piece of it. If we do that in architecture, urban planning, we're starting to see a connection just beyond our building and into the world around us. Is there a favorite project you have that starts to point towards this different way of thinking in terms of the application of these principles into the building itself for the project itself? This is funny question, your favorite project, because oftentimes it's the last project that you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully it's the one that's the most successful or most up to date. For us, we have a project that's kind of just at the beginning right now in the city of Hamilton, and it's called Bindigan, which means welcome in Anishinaabe Mawen. And it's a collection of different service providers coming together. So you have Nawasa, which is a child care service provider, child and family care. You have Deidwada Desne, which is Indigenous Health, in partnership with McMaster University, McMaster Health, and you have Ontario Aboriginal Housing Services, which provides housing for Indigenous people off-reserve all over Ontario. So it's a unique project in the sense that these are service providers coming together to create a hub, create a space for Indigenous people, for their health, their well-being, thinking about multi-generational, thinking about community Think about all these things that are often kind of siloed in the real world. This building is really meant to be in and of the landscape as well. The current site has an urban farm on it. And we've built you know, way more building on the site or are about to build way more building on the site. But we've doubled the size of the urban farm as well. You know, so thinking about access to nature, access to food, all these things that we've lost you know, over the past 100, 150 years in a real way. Some would even say post-Industrial uh, Revolution, we're very disconnected from all these things. And to me, that's a part of health. That's a part of wellness as well and something that can help to heal uh, indig- not only Indigenous people, but anybody. Right. You know, these things that uh, I think they're really important. I often ask our podcast guests about design or how design can accelerate positive change. We often hear scary stories about climate change, food scarcity, forced migration, that kind of thing. And it can be difficult sometimes to maintain optimism. But when I think of design, I think of it as a fundamentally positive act. If you're creating something new, you're not doing it to make a situation worse. You're trying to make it better. These large and pressing issues need not only be environmental, as the recent efforts in Canada towards reconciliation point to. From an indigenous design perspective, what do you think design does to help us move towards a better future? 
We talk about kind of a realignment of Western ways of thinking into Indigenous ways of knowing and being. And we see that in architecture. We're starting to see us cut our strings from European models or typologies of buildings. I mean, you take a look at all the bank buildings that are here. They look like the Pantheon, right? (laughs) It's like, what's? how are we importing this type of culture? And I mean, that's just a visual thing. I think we're getting, you know, with LEED, with WELL, with the Living Building Challenge, with all these things, we're starting to move closer and closer to a holistic way of thinking about doing or approaching our buildings. We're pushing that beyond, you know, just even the design of the building and more into the process. How do you work with people? How do we work with contractors? How do we bring everyone to the table kind of an equal way to kind of make these processes, the the construction design process, a little bit more enjoyable? Because, you know, sometimes it can be quite combative, you know, especially when there's money and time involved. So all these Indigenous values for us are wrapped up in kind of a holistic approach to the whole building process in itself and not just the outcome. The values that are based in Indigenous ways of knowing and being to some degree are very much common sense. You know, we need to treat things in a proper way. We need to be thoughtful about our resources. We need to be respectful of the things that give us life and support our lives around us. We need to be educated about these pieces. And then we can start talking about design. Design, you're absolutely right. You have to be optimistic. Sometimes it takes a lot of slowing down. It takes about thinking. It takes about communication with the people that you're working with. What are we actually producing? So there's a lot of things that go on from an Indigenous point of view, and a lot of it has to do with how you're working with people. What does a city look like if it's really realizing these principles and these ideas? I mean, I have my own vision of this. (laughs) What's that vision? (laughs) So I live on Richmond, and Richmond, as you know, is like a five-lane highway that comes into the core of the city from the Don Valley. It's It's where all the people that have cars, you know, BMWs and whatnot drive into the city and work in the financial district for the day, and then they take Adelaide out. You know, so there's one way in, one way out, basically. This road over the pandemic was basically empty. Right. It was amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You could hear the birds for once downtown. I was like, this is what we should be hearing. Right? Why are we not hearing birds? And I stopped and I looked, and Richmond has no trees on it. Not one single tree for about two kilometers of this major road that comes into our city there's a bike lane is it a good bike lane not really it's a kind of temporary bike lane that they took one lane out and put a concrete barrier up uh, removed the parking from that side of the road and that's what we got we got this four lane roadway with a bike lane on it no trees i mean how do we start thinking about that intersection of what's important how do we create place for the birds that we're all of a sudden hearing and when there's no cars around anymore or they're there maybe they're they're there because you know they didn't want to be around with the noise so thinking about you know how do you treat that streetscape can we do a combined bike lane and row of trees that are interconnected are there ways for us to start thinking about connecting our parklands or or green spaces to each other you know we know that trees talk to each other under the ground i would imagine that there's a bunch of places i would love to see a map of this if we could where the trees are disconnected from each other in Toronto. And why are they disconnected? Is it because of you know, our services? Is it because of our water lines, power lines? What is it? And how do we start thinking about making those systems, those infrastructure systems, much more aligned with our natural systems? Right. And to me, that's key. 
We think about you know correcting our systems in a way that's much more flexible, in alignment with nature. I think that's going to be a better city for us all. We got to make place for keep place for our relations. Right. Relations is yeah. all living things, but also non-living things. It's systems that are interacting with each well, other. Is are they non-living? Or... That's the question. <laughs> okay. Right. We see them as living. We see the rocks as living. We see the sun as living. Yeah. We see the moon as our grandmother. Right. These things have that relation that's embedded in our language. That's a relationship that we have with these. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a better way of describing it. It's not just relations. It's a relationship right. that's mutually important. Right. The dirt, the grass, ants, everything we have, a re- there are relations. We have a relationship with them. Does that tie into this concept of seven generations in any way? Is there a linkage between that and the notion of time over Absolutely. Distance? Absolutely. I mean, we are in the now right now, right? And we think you often hear this term seven generations, which is if we last a generation is 20 years or about 150 years out into the future. Our planning, you know, and our our payback times that we look at when we're financing and building buildings or thinking about whether we should put a sustainable system in are much, 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 much shorter than that. Right? You're looking at a seven-year payback or it doesn't get put into a project. Ten years if you're lucky, you know, maybe 15 if there's a green loan in there somewhere. I also say that we should be looking backwards. You know, how do we look to seven generations back to place ourselves kind of within that time frame? Mm-hmm. Understanding that what's happened in the past is really affects us. Our ancestors are with us. It impacts what we're doing now just as much as we should be thinking about what's going to be impactful to seven generations of these people, these children that we don't even know, right? So how do you plan for that? Which is kind of a mind-boggling thing. But I think it's really about placing yourself in that time frame, which is much broader than we typically think. What do you uncover what do you have access to when you think that way? I talk a lot about our Canadian culture and our lack of you know, Canadian identity, specifically through architecture and one may argue through landscape as well. And as I said earlier, there's, you know, we've imported culture. It's still relying on these other ideas that don't really have an identity rooted in this place. And to me, that's one of the things that we're looking back. You know, it's not just about people too. If we start to take a look in our practice, which is what we do a lot about the natural history of place, we go back as far as we can, you know, as far as as far as we can gather knowledge about in this area in southern Ontario, it's really about the retreat of the glaciers. Right. So we're going back 14,000 years here. There's been evidence of indigenous people being here about 10,000 years ago. But there was also 4,000 years of other things going on, whether it's rivers eroding, whether it's lakes moving, whether it's shorelines changing. All these things are important to understanding where you're building, why you're building there, what impact you're having on this right now. You know, if you go back 14,000 years, it does tend to make you think 14,000 years ahead as well. So thinking about time in a broad sense really grounds you. You know, it grounds where you're making decisions from. It grounds why you're doing things. And it kind of points you in a direction of what's important. Often I find it can be discouraging if you think of the change that has to happen in order for us to be yeah. more certain of our futures and how far away we are from that and how many things are in our way. Whether it's bureaucracies or financial systems or individuals, like what's your sense of how we're going to move towards that place in a way that 
gets us there. Did you want my optimistic answer? <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, as I, I said, I said previously, the earth will take care of herself. So she will be fine. Our mother will be fine. You know, that's something that's kind of scary to think about, but being an optimist, you know, there are, there are, there's always bureaucracy in the way. The thing that I think is really exciting for us is that we're starting to see people, and not just designers, but the, you know, the people that are funding projects, developers, starting to see the value in Indigenous ways of knowing and being, and this respect for not just nature per se, but the world around us. That's happened within my lifetime as a as a practicing architect for the past 16 plus years. And specifically in the last five, we're seeing a very big shift. I have my theory about why this has happened, which is the confirmation of the children being found in Kamloops. I think that that threw everyone for a spin. Where you had people coming out of the woodwork going, oh, I didn't know. And this is something that we've always if you're Indigenous, you've always known that there's missing children. Mm-hmm. And they're somewhere. Where they are, we don't know. We knew they were on Mark Graves. And every residential school, which is at the height of 130 across Canada, you know, we're just scratching the surface here. So I think the reality of that treatment is a driver for people starting to see the value in the longevity of Indigenous people, but also the value in our ways of doing things. It's something to be celebrated. And I see if, you know, if we come together and start to, as I said previously, you know, value this in the same way that we value Western ways of thinking, we're going to see the Canadian culture get better and better and better. One thing that I find always helps to land some of these ideas is very specific examples of a moment that you were on a project or maybe even before you were in architecture, something inspired you to get into architecture, but some specific moment where something specific happened that you said either something has to change or this is change happening or I have some hope now. And it could be something small. It could be, you know, you describe hearing the birds on Richmond, for example. Yeah. Are there other examples where you found yourself in the moment having sort of a visceral sense of these ideas you're talking about coming to life? Well, I've wanted to be an architect since I was like four years old. <laughs> so I can't remember when that moment happened, right. but I remember being very much in that realm. I'm, I'm a designer artist by heart. Like I've... I can knit, I can paint, I can draw, I can crochet, I can weave, I can sculpt, I can do all these things. So that's kind of, that's how I approach my architecture from an aesthetic point of view and, you know, formal and visual point of view, very design heavy point of view. But also I see, you know, a lot of people do that. A lot of firms are design focused and what makes, I think our work different at Turo is that we're very much focused on all these other things. It's about process for us. And a lot of firms may say, oh, it's a process of listening. We do that too. But I think the way we approach is a little bit more sensitive in the sense that our work is not about us. We are the translators of other people's 
words and knowledge and the more of those words and knowledge and conversations that we can gather and have with people, the better off the project is. We don't come from a point of view where you're going to see a two row project and go, oh, that's a two row project. Because it's, again, of the place that we're building, the history of that specific place. And it's of the people that we're working with at that specific time. We like working that way. Mm -hmm. It's not about us. We're just the facilitators of the work. When you're younger and you're looking at like Frank Gehry or Douglas Cardinal or Norman Foster, you're like, oh, I want to be like them. You know, you're looking at Zaha Hadid, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, runs a piano, all these people. It's like, okay. And they're all, you know, star architects, but they all have a very kind of clear approach and methodology and, and aesthetic. It kind of mm-hmm. comes down to that aesthetic to some degree is that the recognition of their building is through their signature style. And for me, there's a moment where I got to a point where I'm like, you know, it's not about us. It's not about, you know, producing a building that looks like a longhouse or a teepee. It's really about the values that are embedded in that. This probably happened five, six, seven years ago or so. Halfway through my career, I'd say, where you're starting to realize, oh, hey, we can do things different. And there's a need to do things different. You know, we don't work on fancy buildings all the time. A lot of our work is about nonprofit housing or small buildings on reserves where the budgets are extremely tight. You know, so you're always trying to be creative about how do you do something that's unique and special to the people that you're working for without blowing a budget. And a lot of the time they don't want brass and glass, you know, they don't want fancy. They want something that works for them. And they oftentimes have been making do in a secondhand house. It's full of mold or they're in some post-secondary institutions. The native centers are in closets, literally in closets. So, you know, any space is better for them. But, you know, for us, it's really about finding the value in where you're working, who you're working for, and then bringing that forward. And to me, that's something that I think is quite different than a lot of other firms do. It's, it's about aesthetics for them, I would say. Right. Recognition to some degree. I'm so lucky because I get to sit with elders all across Canada and ask them questions and you know just shut my mouth and listen. And I don't have to say anything. And there's something quite powerful in that moment where you're just absorbing. You know, as architects, designers, we're always taught to feedback and make sure that people know that we know what they're saying, you know, and People get it if you just listen. You know, it's really, really quite a powerful tool that we use. In previous interviews, you've mentioned two projects, one with the Seneca people in upstate New York and the other with Seneca College here in Toronto as being among your favorites. Can you talk a little bit more about why they remain so important to you? So Seneca Nation of Indians is the first one, and that's in Salamanca, New York City. So it's not for Seneca College, it's for the Seneca Nation of Indians. And they have two reservations because they're in the States. They also have a casino, two casinos. So they've come into a fair amount of money. They were amalgamating all of their different services in Salamanca into which were housed in old buildings, old houses, old duplexes, whatever they were, bungalows, uh, into one 30,000-square-foot building. They had two other buildings there. They had a child care building, and they also had a health care building. And this was kind of the third piece to what we considered to be a campus for them. It was a really, really fun exercise 
And one of my first projects were that actually got built. So this is maybe three or four years into my career where I'm like, is anything going to get built? Let me just say they had a previous architect working on it that they didn't see eye to eye with. And they brought us in. And, you know, this is kind of where it started for me is understanding that, you know, it's not about Turo. It's not about Matt Hickey. It's about the clients that you're working with. And we did a bunch of gaming exercises with them. We brought in the chiefs, the elders. We played around with, uh, you know, where people should be. We asked a ton of questions. So that work, that front end work took a lot, a fair amount of time. And things happened that uh, you wouldn't typically have in an administration building. It's a three-story building. So, you know, you would think that the president and the treasurer and the counselors would be on top. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not. <laughs> There's a non-hierarchical. The people that are on the top are the people that don't see people all the time. Finance, you know, people that are kind of uh, not necessarily front-facing. All the counselors' offices are on the ground floor, right when you get in the building, which is quite amazing. And this is what the community wanted. We wanted accessibility to them. There's a, also a courthouse in there and police in there as well. Um, so it was a really kind of a nice amalgamation of all these pieces. A bunch of Indigenous iconography, not even iconography, but kind of values and, and imagery that's embedded in that building as well. One of my favorites, because it's one of my first where I actually got to see some, what Indigenous design could look like in my career. Odato, which is one of the last projects that we did. Uh, this is up at Seneca Newnham College. We were brought into the process kind of partway through them thinking about it. And for us, it was really about establishing identity, Indigenous identity, in a place for the students at that school. A lot of Indigenous students come from the north or from far away. It's the first time in the city. And as you know, you know, Toronto can eat you up and spit you out fairly easily. So a lot of these people have never left their home communities before. So we really wanted to create a place of shelter for them, but also a place that uh, was quite celebrated within the college as well. Right. And it is, which is exciting. <laughs> the one thing you said a little earlier was about iconography. And I know you've also yeah. said it's not just about iconography, but at the same time, it does feel like there's probably a strong relationship between yeah. I mean, expression we, and the principles. We layer it in there, but it's not like we put a totem pole up and call it a right. day, right? There's moments where we do reference things in the Seneca Allegheny building. There's uh, the front uh, facade is a sloped three-story glass facade facing south, and it has the ever-growing tree wampum in it and the fritting in the glass. It's subtle. You could call that iconography, right? And it's not something that we do as a one-and-done type of thing. It's typically embedded into multiple layers of the conversation. It's similar with Odato. Odato also has 28 ribs in it, representing the 28 days in a lunar cycle. And it's also oriented. The orientation of that building is oriented towards the summer solstice, June 21st, June 22nd, Mm -hmm. when the sun rises on the horizon. We do a lot of sunrise ceremonies. So that kind of orientation or marking of what I would call the real direction is important. We always try and, especially in the city, try and mark directionality as a way of kind of grounding people into the natural systems of the world. For anyone who's young listening to this, who's thinking about this and is inspired, who maybe sees it as almost an impossible jump from where they are to where they need to go, like what would you say to that person? I came through it to the arts world. You know, I went to college and I ended up working my way into university that way. My math is good, but I don't think you need to be a, a brain surgeon in math by any means. Um, so don't let that hold you back is one thing I would say. The other piece is architecture can take you anywhere. 
you know, you don't necessarily even need to be building buildings per se. You can be writing, you can be doing landscapes, which I, I love. You can be doing interiors, whatever you want to do. It's a kind of a nice degree to get to allow you to move into other ways. The various fields of design or creative fields more generally are interconnected. The skills you develop and the interests you have in one area can apply elsewhere. I've been talking a lot about, you know, hierarchy previously and kind of inclusivity. And one of the ideas that we've been thinking a lot about recently is this idea about interconnectedness and how, as we've said, you know, our relations and our, the relationships that we have with the world around us are actually real and tangible things. So we're starting to think about that from an outward presentation point of view and an outward architectural point of view of, of how, to some degree, we can't be separated from the environment that we live in. And how does that affect our architecture? How does it affect our landscapes, our urban planning? Interconnectedness. It's a word that characterizes our challenges, which are linked, and the solutions to them, which can only come when we work together. Recognizing and respecting the ties that bind us to each other and to the planet is necessary to make the kinds of progress that will help us all flourish. Two Row's way of working and the projects their efforts help bring into being are just one inspiring example of how this attitude accelerates positive change. This belief that design can be not only a force for good, but a tool for encouraging people to continually make better choices has united all the interviews we've published in recent months with Alex Honnold, Bruce Mao, Robert Groth, Bjarke Engels, and Frida Abu-Bakar. Today's conversation has been the final episode of First Things First Season 3. We're taking a brief hiatus before we return in a few months with a new season and a new thematic focus as part of Frontier Magazine. Stay subscribed to this feed and you'll receive the new episodes when they're released. If you're listening but not subscribed, visit magazine.frontier.is to read our weekly newsletter and receive word when the new episodes will be ready. Thanks for listening. First Things First is hosted by me, Patty Harrington, and produced by Heather Goh. We're exploring the idea that change happens when people have better, more inspiring ways to change. Rather than telling people what not to do to address the big global challenges we're all up against, we should design more exciting products, services, and stories built on strong social and environmental foundations. Design can help us move faster to a more equitable world. First Things First is a Frontier podcast. Frontier is a purpose design office based in Toronto. We help organizations define, embody, express, and measure purpose and ambition. We also share stories where design is creating positive change. And we provide tools to those who constantly strive towards new and better places. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is.